This week and next week, we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis uh, 18, 19, 20. And, you know, we're going to be dealing with some heavy topics. Uh, This week, we're talking about the wrath of God. Uh, Not something we generally like talking about. We don't, you know, talk about over supper very much. Um, And next week, we're going to be talking about sexual abuse. Uh, something that's actually not talked a lot about in the church, and, uh, and yet is, it's, it's really all over the place within the church. It's important for us as a church to talk about. And, uh, you know, one of the things about God's Word is God's Word is inspiring. It's, you know, I think Jesus is inspiring. I think the gospel is inspiring. And, uh, but, you know, our culture is obsessed with positivity. I, I want positive thoughts about everything, which there's some good to that, you know, trusting God and believing God's at work. I think that's a good thing. But, you know, the Bible is not sentimental. The, Bi- the Bible is not trite. The Bible is just uh, dead honest about the world and about life and about the brokenness of our world. And so, you know, we have some weeks that are inspiring and happy and some weeks where we're dealing with the reality of our world and it's good for us as a church. So I'm just preparing you this week, some heavy stuff, the wrath of God next week, uh, uh, sexual abuse. But I think it's, it's really healthy for our church to talk about these things. So um, we're looking at Genesis 19 mainly. I'm going to read just a couple verses. I'm going to read verses 20 20 to 21 in chapter 18, and then we're going to skip down and read uh, the first 29 verses of chapter 19. So uh, you'll need a Bible. You know, I I refer to the Bible as I'm going along. So if you don't have a Bible uh, in front of you, look under your seat and turn to page 12. Or if you have your Bible with you, open up to Genesis 18. So this is Genesis 18, uh, starting in verse 20. This is God's word to you because he loves you. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Skipping down to chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where the men who came to you uh, tonight, bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let, them, uh, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn. And he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons 
sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, uh, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities And what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up from the smoke of uh, went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we confess to you that we're unsettled when we read in your word both about the wickedness of people, but also about your own violence, your wrath. We pray that you give us uh, both hearts that tremble before you and tremble before your word. And yet we ask that you would show us that you are good and show us that this is uh, what we would want from you, a God who is just. And so we ask that you would be our teacher. And Lord, you know um, that I am insufficient to teach your holy word. And so we need your spirit to come and be our teacher and to apply these things to the questions we have, the things that we face in our own lives. And so we invite you to be our teacher and to open up your word that it may indeed give us life and that it may indeed point us to Jesus, who is our Savior and who is our great joy. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So um, we're we're talking this morning about the wrath of God. Um, It's a famous passage, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, if, if you've ever heard of fire and brimstone, this is your fire and brimstone passage of uh, fire and sulfur coming down. You know, this city is basically being bombed. And, uh, you know, um, that this idea of God's wrath, God, God's violence, this is a violent passage, is very unsettling and troubling for many of us. Um, you know, I remember when I, when I was in college, I worked at Avenue Bread uh, downtown, and 
I, you know, I had regular customers who came in all, all the time, and I was on my lunch break sitting out at a table reading my Bible, and one of the customers said, oh, look, a young man reading a Bible. I didn't know young people read the Bible anymore. And, and you know, and we, we got talking about, and she said, you know, the thing that I never understood is why in the Old Testament it seems like God is a God of wrath, and then in the New Testament he's a God of love. And she said, I never understood that. Anyway, see ya. And I was like, oh, you know, let me, let me answer that. And she was gone. Um, and uh, I didn't get to say it. Um, and, but for many of us, uh, that's, that's how we feel about God, is that there's kind of these two sides, these two faces to God. There's the gentle, warm father who wants to come to us, and then there's the uh, vindictive, uh, harsh, rigid, wrathful, violent God. And we're kind of confused um, which one we're getting. And, um, but, you know, what's interesting is that in our culture, it's quite common um, for many people to say, you know, if there is a God, he's, there, he's a God of love. If, uh, you know, most people say whether they're Christian or not a Christian, they say, yes, I believe in God, and God is all loving. Um, I know that he's a God of love. And we take that for granted. We say, of course God's a God of love. But one of the things we don't know is where do you get that? Where did that come from? You know, because if you look at the history of the world or even the, you know, different cultures around the world, that's not a given in cultures around the world anywhere that God is loving. I mean, historically, uh, you know, if you look at Eastern religions, they don't say that God, they say God is impersonal. Um, so God can't be loving like, you know, like a person, have a will and show compassion. He's more of a force or, a, you know, a power. They believe something like that. But that God is impersonal. So you can't get that from Eastern religions like Buddhism or something that God, that God is loving. And you look at all the pagan religions throughout the world. You know, the gods are not loving. They're demanding, you know, uh, more and more sacrifices from people. They're bloodthirsty. They're greedy. Um, they want people serving them. They don't, they're not humble and compassionate and gentle. There's nothing like that from pagan religions. And uh, so as you look through the world, the idea that we have that God is loving really can't... Actually, you know, I should say one other thing. You, you can't look at nature and find out that God is loving either. You know, I shared with you a few weeks ago about my chickens that... Uh, I had, we had three chickens. We loved them. They na- we named these chickens. Uh, each of my kids had a, a chicken. And raccoon, these raccoons came in. They climbed into our coop. One of the chickens was trying to escape under the uh, 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 you know, chicken wire, and it got wedged under. And, you know, did the raccoon say, oh, this isn't a fair fight. You know, we need to, let me, put, let me help you through and let's, you know, make sure, let's make sure this is even, you know. Um, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight anyone who's unarmed. You know, you're, you're kind of a vulnerable chicken right now. I'm not going to, is that, no. It ate the chicken alive while it's under the, stuck under the, uh, and, and, you know, we came out there and one of them got, got free. You know, one of the chickens come free. What do the raccoons do? They come back the next day and they eat that thing alive. And do they care that my kids love these chickens and the chickens had names? They don't care. And the reality is, is that nature is competitive. Nature is violent. Nature is vicious. And you, if you go out into the natural world, you are not going to find, wow, there must be a loving God out there. You're not, you're not going to find that. Animals are ripping each other apart. It's competition. Violence. So where did we get this idea? There must, wow, if there's a God out there, he's just a loving, tender God. Where did that come from? I'll tell you, it came from one place, and that's from the Bible. And you live in a culture that it has been shaped by at least some degree by the vision of God that is in the Bible. 
And what that means is if we're going to say that God is loving, then we got to look at the Bible to define for us what a loving God is. And, uh, you know, what we find there is that um, when the Bible shows us what God's love is, that a part of God's love is his wrath. And, uh, you know, his wrath and his love are actually one. Now, you know, for most of us, part of the reason that wrath is kind of unsettling for us is because usually when we see wrath, it's, you know, maybe in a boss or something, and and you're kind of always wondering, which boss am I going to get this morning? You know, I hope he got enough sleep next, last night, so that I'm getting the nice boss, or am I going to get the wrathful boss? Who's, and, and, you know, it's, who's it going to be? There's these two people, you know, or or maybe a, a father who's that way, who's volatile, and all of a sudden, you know, who are you? Which person are you? And we think, oh, that's how God is. He's changing. But one of the things that theologians have insisted throughout the history of the church is that God is simple. I know that's a weird word, but what that means is that all of God's characteristics are one. They're the same. And that God's wrath and his love are actually the same characteristic. They're just different perspectives on the same characteristic. That his love and his wrath actually go together. And so what I want to do is, as we look at this passage, what I want to show you um, is that a couple things about the wrath of God. First of all, that because you know deep down that God is loving, that deep down you expect God to be a God of wrath. You actually want that from him. You might not have thought to verbalize that or thought that way of God. You expect God to be a God of wrath. And secondly... That the only way that we can be saved from God's wrath is through Jesus. Okay? These are the two things we're going to pull out. This is Genesis. Genesis, you know, you've been seeing this probably in Genesis. Genesis keeps pointing us towards Jesus. The gospel's all over the place. Well, it's here again. So uh, those are the two things we're going to be looking at. Is that first, that deep down you want God to be a God of wrath. And second, that the only way to be saved from the wrath of God is through Jesus. Okay? So first, deep down you expect God to be a God of wrath. Now, I, I um, planned this sermon series and that today I would be preaching on Genesis 19 over a year ago. So I could not have planned that uh, there would be a you know, sodomite uh, scandal in Penn State this week um, when I'm preaching on a chapter uh, about um, Sodom. Um, but one of the things uh, that... If you've been, you know, if you've been watching the news, there's a, uh, there's been a huge scandal at Penn State that um, one of the best top assistant coaches in the country, uh, eight boys over the last 15 years, has been uh, sexually abusing, and uh, it turns out that all the way up uh, through the hierarchy of Penn State, uh, coaches, administrators knew about this, and they did not investigate it, they did not act upon it, and they tried to brush it aside and to ignore it. And what you see is whether it's liberal people, whether it's conservative people, whether it's sports commentators, everyone is horrified at the way that this has been handled. And what people are saying is when something comes out like this, if you don't know what's ha- what happened, there, a, a, a graduate assistant uh, almost 10 years ago walked in and saw this assistant coach uh, in a shower with a, with a 10-year-old boy. And he told, he told the coach, the coach told the administrator, and they both were just, everyone's just trying to clean their hands of it. I don't want to deal with this mess. And all of a sudden it comes out that um, 40 counts of sexual abuse against uh, Jerry Sandusky, uh, it, what he's facing. 
And everyone is in, outraged about it. And uh, what we expect is that when something like that happens, when people are being violated and being abused, that, that the perpetrator should be punished. It should be found out, it should be investigated, and they should be punished. And, you know, actually I read this uh, uh, column by a campus pastor at Penn State, and he, was, he, was, he had read through the, the grand jury um, investigation, and he said he was noting that um, two of the victims, uh, what happened with the victim two of the eight victims, um, the graduate assistant saw, I witnessed what was happening to this boy, and he told the coach, and the coach told someone else, and what he's saying is nobody really cared about the boy. Everyone just cared about washing their hands of it. But he said, victim six, something very different happened. He came home and his hair was wet and his mom was asking about why his hair was wet. And what she did, this is, this is how we describe, this is what it says she did. Immediately, this mom called the police, cooperated in a wiretap, confronted Sandusky to his face, interrogated him about the details of showering with her son, grilled him about the effect he had on her, her son, and rebuked him, telling him never to shower with the boy, another boy again. She sees a little bit of evidence, and she loves that boy, and she says, I'm going after that guy. That's what love does. Love does not turn its back and say, I'm not going to get angry. I don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. I don't want to unsettle anything. Love jumps into it. And, and that's what we expect from God, isn't it? Do you want a spineless God who says, oh, you know, we, I just love everyone. You know, come on, there's nothing wrong in the world. Is that really what we want? No, we don't. We're finding out this week that if we're going to be outraged about those things, we had better expect that God's going to be outraged as well. And that's actually exactly what we see in this text. You know, it says in, um, it says in uh, verse, uh, verse 20, back in chapter 18, it says this. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that uh, has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God said he's hearing someone crying out to him about this city, that this city is doing something to them, and, and they're calling out for help. And so what God does is that's why these two angels get sent, is God sends two angels into the city to investigate. Go find out. You know, in the, in the Old Testament law, it says that any crime needs to be verified by two or three witnesses. So he says, he says let's go get some witnesses. And as soon as they, uh, they uh, end up in the city, the uh, lot approaches them and welcomes them to the city. He says, hey, you know, why don't you guys, these two angels come into Sodom and Lot says, why don't you come stay with me? And they say, no, we're just going to stay in the town square here. And Lot says, no, not a good idea. You can't do that here. Why doesn't he want them staying in the town square? He says, you need to come stay in my house. And he, he urges them to come. And you say, well, what's the problem? What's going to happen in the town square? Well, we find out that this city has a certain way that they deal with visitors that are coming to them. And uh, after dinner, they're at Lot's house. It says in verse 4, but before they lay down, before they go to bed, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you last night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And we know from this text and from other places that that language in Hebrew to say to know them is, is to sexually know them. 
And uh, basically what's happening is they've surrounded this house. And when visitors come to this city, it is the practice of this city that every single man in the whole town comes out and surrounds the town to gain, gang rape anyone who comes into that town. And you imagine, imagine that happening in a city. In, you know, this is, Sodom's maybe the size of the Birchwood neighborhood. You know? Imagine a city that size. And a visitor comes, in, in the Old Testament, you know, when a visitor, in, in the ancient world, when a visitor comes, they don't have motels, they don't have police, there's no protection. You know, travelers and sojourners are the most vulnerable people in society. And they come, and they have no protection, and the whole city comes out, and they just have their, pass them around and have their way with them. And uh, God does not tolerate that. It is pure wickedness. And, you know, actually, it says that everyone young and old came. These are likely elementary age kids are coming out. They've been trained by their fathers that this is what sexuality is. This is what sex is for. They've been trained by their fathers in it, and they're getting led in this. And the people that have been crying out to God are the people who've come to this city. This has happened before. And people have been crying out, and God is stepping in to say, it is going to stop. This will not happen anymore. And let me just tell you, that's what you want. If God is remotely good, you expect him to not be some Santa Claus or, you know, the jolly, you know, jolly laughing all the time. That's not what you want. Uh, you, do you want a God that would have been fired from Penn State if he worked there? No. You would want a God who would absolutely done something. A God that's not spineless and not a coward and does not walk away from messes. He steps into it. And in this case, for this city, uh, God stepping into it and his wrath comes looks like him wiping out this city and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to free this part of the world from the plague of this wickedness. And his wrath of God, the wrath of God comes and he burns the city down and all these men are killed. And this, this, it's very it's severe. I understand that. Now, it's interesting, you know, reading this, commentators, um, there's somewhat of a debate. Is, um, is God a conservative or a liberal? In this passage, you know, uh, this is kind of a traditional conservative passage. You know, it's a city of homosexuals and God burned it all down and killed them all. And the, the conservatives say family values. Right. <laughs> this is uh, this is where in, and there's some degree, you know, uh, the, the sexual issues going on here are certainly um, uh, they're certainly present. Um, you know, Genesis is, is the book of beginnings where all the areas of, of human life are being kind of revealed. You know, uh, families are started, uh, cities are started in Genesis, uh, music and, and culture and uh, work and farming and uh, um, uh, wars. All of the, the kind of basic things of human life are being introduced in, into Genesis. And so the fact that this is the first introduction of homosexuality is a negative compared to the kind of vision of sexuality that Genesis 2 has of a man and a woman coming together and, you know, the man says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's singing over his wife and they were naked and they were unashamed. You know, this beautiful picture of of pure sexuality. Um, This is, uh, and certainly, actually, in Jude, the book of Jude, um, Jude sees that the the sexual issues are the biggest problem uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah, it says uh, in Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment by eternal fire. So Jude does say that, the, that there's sex, the sexual problems that are have, happening in, um, 
in Sodom are the main issue. But, you know, there's no way, you know, if a conservative says, you know, look, it, you want to find out what God thinks of, of gay people? Why don't you read uh, Genesis 19? Look what he did. He burned them all up. You know, very likely, if, if, if you know someone who's gay, they're probably not likely, you know, gang raping people who come to visit their town. That's not what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're and, and that's what the issue that we're happen, happening, that's happening here. And actually, that word for outcry, you know, when God says, I'm hearing the outcry, everywhere in the Bible, that's, that's what the poor are doing. The poor are crying out and saying that we're being taken advantage of. So that's why liberals say, actually, this isn't a conservative passage. This is a liberal passage. It's the poor who are, who are vulnerable. The vulnerable of society are being taken advantage of. And the powerful are using their power uh, to exploit uh, the vulnerable. And people come into this town. They're poor. They're homeless. And this town takes advantage of them. And actually, Ezekiel, Ezekiel agrees with them. He says in Ezekiel 16, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Ezekiel says the issue was that they weren't caring for the poor, uh, that they weren't welcoming in uh, the homeless, and they were taking advantage of them. And so, you know, which is it? Is God a conservative or a liberal? And the issue, I'll tell you what happens, is that for most of us, when people talk about the wrath of God, we want God to be angry about things that we're angry about. We want God to be outraged by the things that, we want God on our team, right? Everyone's trying to get God on our team to have our back and to condemn the things that we condemn. And we want God in our back pocket. And what we find in this, in this passage is that God isn't on anyone's team, all right? He's not in our back pocket. And God, the vision of holiness is far bigger than any of our vision of holiness, of, of God's justice, is way bigger than any of our pictures of justice. And what that means for us is that on the one hand, you know, we expect God to be wrathful. You, you expect that. This Penn State incident is a perfect illustration of that's why we expect that from God. But at the same time, God's wrath makes us uneasy. Because on the one hand, it's easy to say, yeah, I think those wicked people out there in another part of the world, wherever they are, that God's wrath should come on them. But, you know, what if my vision of life doesn't line up with God's holiness? What do I do about that? And where's the forgiveness, right? If God's a God of wrath, I thought he was a God of forgiveness. I thought he was a God of grace, overlooking sin. Where is that? And, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. Throughout the Bible, God is always giving an opportunity to repent. When his anger is provoked, he is always op- providing an opportunity to repent. And uh, you can see that even here in this passage. You know, the, the, uh, so this mob comes around Lot's house and they're saying, give us the men that are visiting so that we may know them. And Lot goes, actually, you know, it's, it's somewhat courageous. Lot goes outside and starts to plead with them. And, uh, but it says in verse 10, but the men, uh, this is the angels, reach out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the, do- groping for the door. So what's happened is um, these angels strike the men with blindness. So they're, now they're blind. You know, they've come to this house, and it, you'd think that they would realize, wow, so, uh, something's going on here. We're doing something wrong. We just got struck with blindness. You know, maybe we should go home. Let's give this up. They don't do that. They start groping around the house. They're still, tra- I'm picturing like this zombies, you know, uh, you know, like I am legend. Like, you know, they're on the house, like feeling the house, trying to find a way in. They're not giving up. 
And God, you know what that is? That, that stroke of blindness is an opportunity to repent and to see, look at God is opposed to what you're doing. You remember Saul uh, in the New Testament, right? Saul was murdering Christians. And, and how, does, how does Jesus change Saul's life? He strikes him with blindness. And that's when Paul converts. And he humbles himself and he says, and he gives himself to God. And he says, what I've been doing is wicked. They don't do that. They're so given over to their sin, but God is still giving them opportunities to repent. And, you know, let me, I, you know, I'm sorry. I, have, I know I have a lot to say about this. Um, but uh, the gospel, you know what the gospel is, that word gospel, euangelion? It, it's good news. And what that meant in the ancient world, that word for euangelion, what, how it was used was um, when there was a rebellion in, a, in like a kingdom or something like that, and the king would go out and he'd suppress the rebellion. And he'd, uh, you know, if there was a civil war and he'd go out and he'd win the battle. And they would send out messengers to all the surrounding cities to go tell them what had happened in the war. That the king has won the victory. He's a good king. Live under his power. He will bless you. He's just. He's righteous. Be under him. But if, you're under, if you continue under the rebellion, there's going to be consequences when he comes. And so they're going out telling the good news of the victory. But saying, listen, you're going to have to face him pretty soon. And what's happened in the gospel is that when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, he was shown to be the true king of the world. That's what the, the Bible says. The, the, his resurrection shows him to be the true king of the world. And now we're going out, people are going out, Christians throughout the world, to go tell the world, listen, he's a good king. He'll forgive your sins. He'll love you. He'll care for you. He'll change your life. And come and receive his grace. But there's a time coming where God is going to, he has to, clean house and get rid of all the violence and wickedness that's in the world and if you haven't humbled yourself and said I don't want to be a part of the wickedness I want to be transformed I want to be reconciled to God if that hasn't happened then you're going to have to face that wrath and uh, actually I printed for you a, a passage in your um, uh, on page 3 of your bulletin this is from Miroslav Wolf Miroslav Wolf was a, is a Croatian who writes a lot about um, uh, ethnic reconciliation. Uh, you know, he's seen with his eyes all kinds of uh, uh, ethnic cleansing and civil wars. And uh, he's talked about how can you use the gospel to, to bring people together to, to provide forgiveness. And he says that believing in the wrath of God is absolutely essential for that. And this is, this is a little bit of a meaty passage, but, but read this with me. The violence of the rider on the white horse. That's an image of Jesus in Revelation, that he's going to come as a rider on the white horse. The, the violence of the rider on the white horse, I suggest, is the symbolic portrayal of the final exclusion of everything that refuses to be redeemed by God's suffering love. For the sake of the peace of God's good creation, we can and must affirm this divine anger and this divine violence, which at the same time, uh, while at the same time holding on to the hope that in the end, even the flag bearer will desert the army that desires to make war against the lamb. But should not a loving God be patient and keep alluring the perpetrator into goodness? This is exactly what God does. God suffers the evildoers through history as God has suffered them on the cross. But how patient should God be? The day of reckoning must come. Not because God is too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence, and every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. So God is living in this tension of letting violence happen in the world because he wants to offer people an opportunity to come and be reconciled to him. But the day of reckoning will come. And the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the Bible is a foretaste of that. And so... Um, 
my first point is this, is that, I know that's a long first point, but the first point is that uh, you expect that God will be a God of wrath. He can't be any other way. The answer for us, though, is that the only way to be saved from God's wrath is through Jesus. And I want to show you this in this passage. Follow this with me. Now, this is really important. I'll tell you why. Because for a lot of people, the question of uh, God's wrath, what, you know, when people think, oh, you know, if you're a religious person and you believe that God is wrathful and there are certain people that he's going to be violent against or he's going to judge, what that's going to do is that's going to create a certain amount of superiority in you. You know, you're going to think, oh, I'm the righteous person who God loves and I'm on the good guys team and wow you're, uh, you're a sinner that God hates and, you're, and God's wrath is going to come upon you and I'm just going to look down on you and I'm going to turn up my nose at you and many people think that if you believe in a God of wrath you will always uh, that will always happen to you, you will always look at people that way, you'll always turn your nose up at people and judge people and, be, and, and discriminate against people but you won't get that from this passage because here we get a picture of, you know, righteous Lot. The Bible says later that Lot is righteous in this passage. He's the only one who's saved. And what we see is that, you know, Lot lives in the city. He's at the city gate when the, when the, the, uh, the two angels come. And, and he's become, like, kind of in the upper echelon of Sodomite society. He's uh, embodied their culture. And uh, when these angels come, you know, there's some you know, fear of God in him. He says, you know, don't go out in the city, come into my house, let me protect you. But as soon as this crowd, this mob comes around his house and he says, you know, don't do this, don't, don't take these, uh, these angels out and have your way with them. You don't be wicked, he's saying to all his brothers in the city, he says. Um, uh, but it says in verse 8, this is what Lot says to them. Behold, I have two daughters, have not known a man, any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. This is horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. This is the Christian in the story. Do you realize that? He's the Christian. He's God's person. He's the one who's getting saved. And he just said, why don't you take my daughters? They're, these daughters are engaged. They, they're, 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 uh, their husbands-to-be are in the room with them. And he says, you know, I have this house. It's meant for protecting people. That's what he's saying to them. You know, I got this house. I need to protect these angels. But why don't you take my daughters? Are you mad? There's no righteousness there. Can you possibly imagine him doing something like that? And as it goes on, it just, it continues to get worse from there. The text goes on and we find out that, that, you know, Sot lived in Sodom. He loves Sodom. He loves this wicked city. He decided to go there because he wanted to make money. We know that back in, uh, in Genesis 13, that he thought he would make more money there. And he didn't want to live with God's people in the promised land. And he goes and he marries a Sodomite wife, an unbelieving wife. And he gives his daughters to Sodomite husbands. said, yeah, sure, daughter. He's not protecting them. He's not interviewing them. Find out what they believe. Do they love God? Are they good guys? No. Uh, he just gives his daughters to them. He's a coward who's uninvolved. And he's deeply wicked. And it's, it's almost mind-boggling. Um, but it says in verse 15, As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. You know how much that happens when people say, You know, I, I want to be a Christian. I, I want to love God. But there's this tug to that old life, to, the, to that, that wickedness, to that sin. 
you know, it's, uh, one, one, uh, one guy said that it's, it's not only this, that Lot lives in Sodom, but it turns out that Sodom actually lives in Lot now. It's buried deep in him. He can't let go of it, and he's lingering in the city. And uh, Lot doesn't want to leave. His wife doesn't want to leave. His sons-in-law don't want to leave. And what's amazing is that Lot is a Christian. And um, God has set his heart on Lot, not because of anything good in Lot. And the, what's, how does Lot get saved? This is an amazing little st- st- phrase right here. Look at this, verse 16. Lot wants to stay in Sodom, and it, he wants to be destroyed. And it says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Let me just text you, tell you, this is the picture of salvation. Lot is sitting in Sodom, and they're saying, they're warning him, and so the angel grabs him by the neck, and he's dragging him out of the city. And the fact is, that's our story is that we don't come to God. We're not these righteous, perfect people who come to God and we say, we're so holy and wise, and God, I know your ways, and I will live in them, and I will, I will be uh, perfect. No. The reason we come to God and the reason we're saved is that God doesn't ask our permission. He barges into our life. He puts people into our life. He brings his word into our life. He brings his grace into our life without our permission, and he begins to draw, draw, us, into our, draw us to himself, and he drags us out of sin. That God is a hero. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, um, this is the big difference between the gospel and every other religion. Every other religion is saying, here's a bunch of things that you can do. Here are spiritual disciplines. You wanna, uh, if you're going to go into Buddhism, you're going to learn uh, meditation skills so that you can attain higher levels of spirituality and nirvana and get closer to kind of embracing some kind of nothingness. And the gospel, you know, you go into Islam, you're going to be doing spiritual disciplines of, uh, uh, of uh, the five pillars. You're doing things to save yourself. The gospel says that God invades your life and he, uh, and he drags you out of sin. And you know, why does God do that? Why does God do that for, for Lot? Well, this is amazing. I'm going to end here. I know I've said a lot, but this is, this is the key. In... Uh, At the end, you know, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says in verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. And listen to this. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. See what it says? It doesn't say God remembered Lot. It said God remembered the blessing bearer, the chosen one, Abraham. And it was because of Abraham, because, because of Abraham who had the blessing of God, that God rescued Lot. And that's the same for us. Why does God save us from his wrath? It's not because we're good. It's because God remembers the, the blessing bearer who's Jesus. And it's because God remembers Jesus who died on the cross and all the wrath of God fell on Jesus on the cross for us. It's because of Jesus' righteousness, because of what he's done, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, that we're saved and that God embraces us and he rescues us. And, uh, and that's the key. And so why do we not look down on people? Why does the wrath of God not cause us to turn our nose up at people and, and discriminate against people and uh, to be judgmental? It's because we know we deserve the wrath of God. We're the sinners as well, and we've been saved by free grace. And all we can say to people is come to God He's slow to anger. 
He's, he's pushing his anger back. He'll do anything to push back his anger farther and to give you more time and get, give you a second chance and to forgive you. He'll do it over and over and over again. Come to him by faith. And so we expect a God of wrath, but it turns out his wrath is tied up with his love. And we see that wrath and love most clearly in the cross of Jesus. And so that's how we understand is by looking at the cross. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not a spineless God and that you send people to investigate. Uh, You put yourself into the mess of justice. And we thank you that we can look forward to a day of justice, not in fear, but in joy that Jesus has paid for our wrath on the cross. Give us faith to embrace that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.